Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Have a great day. Now, like to introduce our main speaker for this evening, Stephen M. from San Diego. My name's Stephen, and I'm an alcoholic. Oh, I like this meeting. I used to secretary this meeting. I came here all the time. Still good and full too. That's really, really nice. I heard some of the best speakers I ever heard at this meeting, and every once in a while, this was like the most painful 40 minutes of my life but I hope that I am not any of that for you guys tonight. Uh, how about Lance, guys? Ten-minute speaker, man. He was good. Yeah. That was solid, dude. I had, a, uh, I had a very different experience than you the first time I took a drink. The first time I got drunk, it was Mad Dog 2020. I'm in the right place. <laughs> this is the right meeting for a guy like me. Mad Dog 2020, I was about 15 years old. I was out by this gravel pit with a group of three beautiful girls. And uh, we, uh, I think I polished off the first grape one myself, and then I, I helped the next girl with the nice green one, you know, the green Mad Dog 2020, and then, and then the red one, and then the blue one. And I didn't throw up. I didn't have a hangover the next morning. In fact, that night I had a close encounter with the three of those ladies. <laughs> so... You could say I liked drinking right away. (laughs) Something else happened that night that was actually more important than that, that I noticed right away. It caught my eye even more than that at age 15, if you can imagine. When that alcohol reached some kind of crucial level in my bloodstream, I remember tilting my head back and looking up at the stars. It was dark. This is the middle of central Illinois. And I watched all of them turn red. I remember this like it was yesterday. They all turned red, and I watched them rearrange in the sky. And I put my arms out, and for the first time in my life, I was at home. And to this day, I'm actually convinced I had a spiritual experience. I had no idea that it was going to take another spiritual experience to undo what I would do in those next 15 years of drinking. So um, I'm going to say right off the bat that I tend to swear when I speak, and I'm really trying to swear less. If I do swear, you might catch me looking over at the interpreter to see what asshole looks like. (laughs) That's good. That's good. Thank you. (sighs) Now that I got one out of the way, I feel so much better. Um, I drank a lot. I'm not going to spend a lot of time in war stories. I wanted to ask our timekeeper to, like, let me know if I'm still drunk ten minutes from now. So maybe you guys can do that for me. If I'm still drunk in like 10 minutes, can someone shout it out to me? Because, you know, we've been around here for a little while, know that. I'm still new, as a matter of fact. I'm only a little over five years sober. My sobriety date is 831 of 2012. They called me a week ago to speak at this meeting, so I have a sneaking suspicion that I'm like a second string guy. Someone canceled. Because there's no way somebody with five years is going to be your first choice for this spot. I'm going to do my very best to not get drunk before the end of the meeting is what I'm trying to say. Um, 
Anyway, I'm not going to waste a lot of time with war stories because uh, they're not, my war stories don't help me. And they certainly can't help you guys. I'm only going to tell a few so far as they can help some of the new people to identify. I'm terrible with names, but Shane and Andrew and uh, Bibby Bobby and Tim Tom, uh, welcome. You, you new guys are uh, maybe the most important people in this room because uh, you're going to keep some of the rest of us sober. Um, I drink for effect. Right from the very first time, I figured that out. I drink for effect. I don't care about the effervescence or the chestnutty afternote of what I'm drinking. I will flick a cockroach out of my drink and take it down if that's what it takes. I really don't care. I drink for effect. Um, I'm going to fast forward a while. I, uh, I ended up uh, going to college for theater. I was a theater major. I got this big free ride. It was a hot shot with an ego. <laughs> a big ego. Um, and uh, I, I was at this party. And I was standing underneath this bridge. It was full of people, and it was two stories up in Chicago uh, by DePaul University. And I was standing down here satisfying a really arrogant bet with a buddy of mine when that bridge let go and came down and landed smack on my head. I didn't know what had happened. I woke up. There's blood coming out of my eyes, ears, nose, mouth. My hands are stuck and paralyzed in front of me. And when I can finally clear enough blood out of my eyes, look down at my leg, it's, my foot's backward and upside down, and I have bones sticking through my leather pants. Ego. Uh, bones sticking through my leather pants. And... Uh, my very first thought was, well, crap, I can't go to this quiz on Thursday. And my second thought was, I'm going to have to go to the hospital and I can't drink in there right away. And that made me, re- that made me more anxious than the bone sticking out of my leg. You know, by age 19, I was already at a point where, I mean, <laughs> if I was ever going to get to sleep tonight or get any kind of peace of mind today, I absolutely needed some Jim Beam or something like that. At least, at least I, and not and like 12 drinks or something like that to, to kind of smooth things out. You know what I mean? Um, that was the very first time that booze saved my life. A doctor would confirm that for me later. Um, I was so drunk that when it came down on my head, you know, drunk people are always the ones that survive car accidents. We're always the ones who survive because we're nice and loosey-goosey. We kind of roll with the blow. Um, at that point, I didn't know that, I mean, booze would save my life dozens of times, maybe hundreds later. I'm the last person, for you new guys, I'm the last person in the world who's going to try and convince you that you should not drink. I'm a, I'm a huge proponent of drinking, and I think it saves a lot of lives. Kept me alive when nothing else would. Let's talk about that for a minute. So, uh, I don't know, five, seven, eight years later, something like that, I've developed this terrible anxiety problem. I've been you know, expelled from school and started frequenting the jail. Can't stay out of jail. When I go to jail, I go to solitary confinement, too, because I like to hit cops and I like to hit women, and, and I, I, I like to hit other people in the jail, and so I always end up locked in this little room. And so I've been doing that over and over and over again. I've tried to stop drinking. In fact, I saw this, this bioenergetic psychotherapist because AA involved God, and <laughs> my mind back then was, there is no God going to help me, and that's real clear. So that's obviously not going to work. I go to bioenergetic psychotherapy, and this guy kind of dangles a carrot in front of my face that says, well, I mean, look, let's see if you're an alcoholic, you know. Alcoholics have this thing. It's kind of like an allergic-type reaction where uh, once they have a drink, they're going to keep on drinking. Why don't you try and have one drink a day for seven days? I said, great, you're on. I'm not an alcoholic. I can do other stuff? Said, yeah, but you try and have just one drink. Try not to do the other stuff and see what that's like. I said, but I mean, what about like just a little, you know, um, beer bong? Um, I said, I mean, go ahead, it's fine. So I'm doing this. I made it, I made it to the seven days. 
I made it to the seven days because there's this wonderful carrot dangling at the end of it. If I can do this, then it means she's going to have to leave me alone about it. My parents are going to have to leave me alone about it. I can continue doing whatever I want when I'm on business trips, and then I can drink like I want to, and everyone will shut the fuck up about it. And I did it. The allergy can be temporarily overcome is what I found. That's been my experience. It's a little contradictory to what it says in the book, perhaps, except when we think about the fact that it says over any... Uh, significant period of time. Considerable, thank you, considerable period of time. That's why, yeah, five years. Um, Let's move forward. I got to a point where I was, I wanted to take a pair of pliers and just pull the teeth out of my head. I was so uncomfortable in my internal condition. I hadn't worked in two years I was still living off the settlement that I got from that bridge coming off of me, and I was watching those numbers get smaller and smaller and smaller, and my court costs get higher and higher and higher, and I was watching my mental health starting to deteriorate. The anxiety ramps up. I'm on all sorts of medications for that, SSRIs, benzodiazepines, cardiac medicines, all kinds of stuff for these terrible panic attacks and this awful generalized anxiety disorder that even at that point, a fifth of, fifth of booze, I was still... You know, it, it, it was always a handle, at least a handle, and that was just to start the night out. I mean, it, it was, I was messy, and I got uncomfortable enough that I, uh, I just decided to check out. And so um, I took a few bottles of those benzodiazepines and a few bottles of the sleeping pills and a few bottles of the hypnotics and a few bottles of the heart medicine. I think it was a total of maybe six bottles of these pills, and I chased it with a fifth of tequila, and I called my sister to tell her I love her and goodbye. My family didn't know where I lived. They didn't have my address. I had moved. I was in San Diego at this point. They're in Illinois. And, uh, yeah, I, I took it and I just checked out. Uh, fortunately or unfortunately for me, my sister is a very resourceful woman in medical school, and she was able to have the police somehow track my cell. So I got defibrillated back to life and ended up in that horrible, inevitable situation that statistically there's probably at least six or seven people in this room have ended up in where you wake up after a suicide attempt and you think, I can't even do that right. Yep, statistically, of course. Um... Where I was mentally at that point, I I was dumbfounded that my parents, who had flown clear across the country, were a little bit worried when I busted out a 30-pack of ice house and went down to the pool after I got out of the hospital. You know what I mean? I knew how to talk to the doctors. I knew how to not get 5150'd. I know the right things to say. It was a big misunderstanding. I was confused about the dosage. I had woken up after I had taken Ambien. I didn't mean to do it. You know, you can get out of the hospital saying those things. I never got 5150'd, and I went down to the pool and started drinking a 30 of ice house trying to convince them everything's fine. And in my mind, it really, truly was. It was fine. I just needed to get back to normal and had a little break, and it was nice to be a couple days sober. (laughs) So it was just time to kind of get back to life and get back to work. Um, I wasn't even close to getting sober at that point, so I need to move forward quickly. About five more years of drinking. Jail, jail, jail. Less work, less work, less work. I am living in a really, really busted out little Pacific Beach, I guess you would call it a one-bedroom apartment. Blood on the walls, place smells of cat urine and smoke and all kinds of other foul things. And uh, I was to a point where I was chasing shadow people around my apartment with a knife, practicing hiding in the attic for the next time the cops showed up at my door to arrest me, and uh, getting arrested for chasing people down the street with an axe. 
my neighbors came home to me pouring kerosene all over their porch and then hosing it off, laughing, saying it was a joke. <laughs> mm. And that was on one of my good days. I was, um, I was deteriorating. Actually, I have a picture. I have a picture of me then. Here we go. Yeah, that was me. I was not in good shape. You can see I was swollen up. Sulfates, sulfates, because I was too sick to walk down to the liquor store. But there was a 7-Eleven three doors down, which sells Franzia. Anybody? The white wine, the box wine. I lived off the Franzia. I'd eat once a month. I'd have a burrito or something like that. And the rest, I lived off the Franzia. And, of course, Pedialyte, because, you know, health reasons. You've got to stay healthy. Electrolytes. And uh, it's always embarrassing when you end up in the ER and your potassium level is at zero. You want it to be at least at three. You know, so I gotta get the Pedialyte, cut it with some vodka that a friend can go and get me. Then I get feeling well enough to go get more vodka before I get stuck back into the, the Franzia cycle, and I get to repeat it over and over and over again. I hadn't worked in four years, and my bank account was negative, and I was completely mad and unemployable, and my teeth were falling out, and I was 225 pounds of sugar, and my liver was poking out from under my ribs, and I was peeing orange brown. And I had cirrhosis of the liver. And uh, the thing is, all of that's not that bad as compared to what alcohol does for me. I could put up with that shit. I really could. Alcohol does something so special for me. And the tricky thing about this is I know it would right now, too. Alcohol does something so special for me. And I'd been to a few AA meetings from the court-mandated DUI classes and the domestic battery claim. I've been to these alcohol classes and uh, nowhere ever did they mention an important distinction that I either missed or somehow wasn't mentioned in those meetings, those new meetings of what actually is a real alcoholic. The first element came back to what that bioenergetic psychotherapist that I spent six grand on had said, which is that we have an allergy. I have an allergy. When I take that drink, aside from those seven days, I have never taken just one drink in my life. Aside from those seven days, that was the only time in my entire life that I had drank that and just abruptly stopped. And it's not because I couldn't. It's because, I mean, from my perspective, I didn't want to. When I take a drink, I want to go downtown, man. You know what I mean? <laughs> Let's drink. I'm still, to this day, puzzled when I see somebody walking down the street with a six-pack. What are you going to do with that? Honestly, what are you going to do with a six-pack? I, I get angry still. I've written, I've written, I've written uh, ten steps on people with, with six-packs. It makes me frustrated. When I take a drink, something gets activated in my mind, my body. In my post-baccalaureate at Cal State San Marcos, I learned a little bit. that It has a little something to do with cytophane, this chemical where uh, alcoholics have a higher, higher concentration of it inside the blood-brain barrier. You could say that. You can call it about a diminished reward response, whatever it is. Science still doesn't know exactly why it is, but physicians will agree to this day, not just in the 1930s, that real alcoholics, chronic alcoholics exhibit craving after the first drink and that they think that it's some type of allergic reaction. I had no idea. I just thought I really liked to drink. But that's nothing. The book says it's what, academic at best? Silkworth said that. Academic at best, if I didn't have the second element of this disease, which is by far the most dangerous, and that's the obsession. I, <laughs> I, I, I could sit up here and look cool and say, you know, um, it's been completely removed from me. I, it hasn't. It hasn't. 
The idea that somehow, someday, I will control and enjoy my drinking might not be in my conscious mind. It's been wiped clean from that. I know that's not true. Intellectually. But somewhere deep down there, you bet your ass, I absolutely, really, truly do believe that I can control and enjoy my drinking. That's why I'm here tonight. That's why I come to meetings. No amount of bioenergetic psychotherapy, no amount of medical detox, no amount of convincing, no amount of her, no amount of anything is going to completely remove that. It's in there, and it will come back when I stop doing this stuff. And then there's the third thing which caught up to me that night when I took all those pills, which is the spiritual malady, man. And I know any of you real alcoholics in here know what I'm talking about. It's that part of me so deep down, so sick that nothing could touch it. It's that part of me that's so sick that nothing could possibly help it. That's what it felt like to me. And I identified before I even had a word to attach to it. I knew something was really, really wrong with me. Like bad. I think Silkworth. No. Freud had something to say about that here on page 27. The doctor said, you have the mind of a chronic alcoholic. I've never seen one single case recover where that state of mind existed to the extent that it does in you. Our friend felt as though the gates of hell had closed on him with a clang. He said to the doctor, is there no exception? Yes, replied the doctor, there is. Exceptions to cases such as yours have been occurring since early times. And this is a psychiatrist. He's a medical doctor saying this kind of stuff. Here and there, once in a while, alcoholics have, done, have, have had what are called vital spiritual experiences. To me, these occurrences are phenomena. They appear to be in the nature of huge emotional displacements and rearrangements. Can you write a prescription for that for me, please, Doc? Ideas, emotions, and attitudes which were once the guiding forces of the lives of these men are suddenly cast to one side and a completely new set of conceptions and motivations begin to dominate them. In fact, they've been trying to produce some such emotional rearrangement within you. And Roland Hazard went and got drunk. You know, that was after a year daily psychotherapy with Young in, in uh, Switzerland. He goes back to the United States. He's drunk in, I think it was six weeks. Is that right? Six weeks? Yeah, six weeks. So the best psychiatrist in the world can't help this guy. And he knew he hadn't helped him, and he let him go anyway. I think that's happened to a lot of us in this room, too. I just spent a year at Scripps Green Hospital. I just shadowed a PA who encounters this stuff all the time, and all the physicians there tell me, yeah, the real chronic alcohol, there's absolutely nothing we can do. Absolutely nothing we can do for him. I mean, they better go to AA. They better do something. I don't know what they're going to do. So... After one more fight, after one more crazy night, after one more knife pulling on someone I loved, I called up my aunt and asked for help. And I said, I think I'm an alcoholic, even though I had no idea what that meant at that point. And uh, she flew in from Arizona and got me into this detox. And uh, I was down at the VOA in National City. And uh, uh, so I do the Librium and sit there for three days, and I'm sweating and doing all sorts of other nasty things. And it was brutal, because, I mean, by that point I was up to... Whatever eight of those tall bottles equates to, I think that's 62 drinks a day, something like that. It was, it, was, it was a bad detox, you know. And I expected that I might start feeling better, but like a lot of you guys, I sobered up and I felt miserable. I was worse. I didn't catch that pink cloud, man. I, was, I, was, I, was, I felt as bad as I did in that night that I took those pills. Sobriety for me is terrible. I hate the feeling of time passing. I hate the feeling of time passing along. It's like a... 
mealworms dragging over my skin or something. I can't stand it. I was ready to kill myself or somebody while I was in there. And uh, believe it or not, no amount of painting, no amount of music therapy, you know, no nice little hot shower with the little candles helped. Equestrian therapy probably wouldn't even have helped. And then I'm talking to these people who are in there. Here's, here's we'll call him Ricky. Who's, it's his 17th time through this same place, but this time it's going to be different. And I'm starting to get the sense that maybe these people don't have the solution, that maybe writing out my triggers isn't going to work. Because like for a lot of other people in here, waking up for me in the morning is my biggest trigger. <laughs> biggest trigger right there. I'm not sure what I'm going to do about that. I'm not sure how we can arrange people, places, or things to help me with that. And I started to really get this horrible, dreading sense that this wasn't going to work. I definitely wanted to drink, and I was really going to drink as soon as I got out of there. I spent 101 days in the VOA. 101 days. And in the middle of that time, they introduced me. They said, well, there's some guys like you at this place called Pathfinders of San Diego. You should go talk to them. And I did. And um, they hurt my feelings. (laughs) They said some mean things to me, like you're going to die. Like, you're hopeless. You're doomed. And that I didn't like that. They gave me a copy of the book. I took it back. You know, I, was taking, I was taking two buses and two trains, I think, to get there. Maybe one train, the Orange Line, to get there from National City. I came back, and I was reading this, and I read the description of the real alcoholic, and I threw the book across the room. It's still, the cover's wobbly from that still to this day. I, because it was me. I hated it. I hated it. I was on paper. It was not just me. It was a schematic of me. It was every little bit about how I work and how I react to situations. And what it told me is there's nothing that anybody can do for you. And I did not like that. I wanted to talk to these people about what was going on inside me, and they didn't want to hear it. They, didn't, they really didn't want to hear it. Guy comes up to me, he asked me, uh, did you decide not to drink today? Yes, yes, yes I did. He says, then what the fuck do you need AA for? If you have that decision, if you have that power of choice, then you don't need us, and you should just go do whatever it is you're going to do. And he walked away. I didn't like that very much. (laughs) Turns out it was exactly what I needed. This isn't about feelings. This isn't therapy. This isn't self-help. This is action. And ultimately, what they told me is this is about reaching out for some kind of power line to a power that's going to solve your problem. This is the last gasp, buddy. And you're running on borrowed time. You're sober like what? Like 90 days? And you still haven't started taking the steps? You are fucked. (laughs) (laughs) That that's the reason to put to put money in in that gold can. (laughs) This is great. I'm kidding. I love you guys. You're awesome. Um, so I ended up moving into that place. I moved into Pathfinders of San Diego and I cried my first night there. I was so disappointed with how my life had worked out. It's been 101 days in this place and now I'm with these losers. And, uh, oh, this is so bad. I used to be a product specialist for Lexus and drove all their prototypes. And what happened to me? I was such a victim. Oh, and they didn't want to listen to me. I got up to that podium and I tried to, like, maybe, maybe, maybe 105 days sober. You were there. 
I got up to the podium and I banged on it and I was trying to explain, I about broke that podium and I tried to explain to everyone the metaphysical importance of the serenity prayer. That was me in my new sobriety. I was still cocky. The ego's resilient. The ego is resilient. I was already trying to tell people, people like you, guys who've been around forever, how to do this thing. I was nuts. And I had no idea what I was talking about. But I did have a sponsor and I was taking the steps and I had a little problem with uh, the second step, and turns out, uh, for me at that time, the universe was just fine. In fact, then I went bigger. I was like, no, no, not the universe. Everything. Okay, great, good, Stephen. Everything. Yeah, you're willing to accept that there might be some power in everything that's greater than you. And I said, yes. <laughs> Third step, you know, I, I had a little issue with that, too, because I'd watched guys run around doing some kind of shady stuff who had taken the third step, who talked about, I've turned my life and my will over to power, you know, power care of God. <laughs> you haven't. No, you haven't. Look at you. Judge and We don't judge in AA, though. We don't judge around here. You haven't done that, though. Look at you, man. I mean, if I do this, I'm going to have to do it right. And it finally was explained to me, look, it's just a decision. Just because you make a decision to buy a house, you haven't bought the house yet. You don't own that house. It's not yours. You just made a decision to buy the house. You want to decide to do the rest of these steps? I said, yeah. Okay, great. Then let's pray. I prayed, and it actually felt kind of good. Nothing really happened to me afterward, as far as I could tell. And I started, took about two months, two months and eight hours to write my, my fourth step. And when I finally did finish that thing, I went to the park, and I read it off, and I was ready to be, like, blown away. You know, maybe this was going to be a little different than all that therapy I'd done, even though it was pretty much the same thing. We're going to identify some character defects. Okay, great, let's do it. And I took the fifth step, and honestly, I didn't feel any, really any, any different. I mean, I was glad I had done it. I went back home and did my little six and seven, and I tried to, like, force the spiritual experience along and make a little tear, you know. But I was just forcing it, self-will. This was going to happen on my terms, and it was going to happen right now. It was going to happen the way it says, just like it in the book. It's going to happen that way. It has to happen that way. And I was a little worried when I didn't feel anything exactly electric happen. I was watching all the guys around me kind of light up and get this thing, and they looked like they were kind of jacked into this power, and they were getting it, and like they were coming to this meeting, and uh, it kind of wasn't happening for me. So that's when this first kind of God shot came through in my life. I'm making my little eight-step list, and I moved over to House 2 at Pathfinders, and I said, look, I am <laughs> kind of don't have really much money for rent, so... I was a massage therapist. I was licensed at that point. How creepy is that? A guy like me. <laughs> Want a massage? <laughs> Got an axe. <laughs> Kerosene. It's going to be even less women at this meeting after tonight. <laughs> A friend of mine showed me something on Craigslist that said, hey, it looks like there's a spot opening up in Golden Hill. They're looking for me. I said, I'm going to go. I mean, I can't take work right now. The only time that, that Steve Sapp is going to let me work is like uh, for like this like three or four hour window Wednesday afternoon. So, I mean, I can't take a job, but I'll go to get practice interviewing. So I did that. And they offered me the job. <laughs> Wait a minute. I told him, I was like, I'm sorry. I have to tell you, I, uh, I, I don't think I can really accept because I can only work in this little window. And. She looks over at her sister, and she's like, you've got to be kidding me. And they turn the paper around to me, and they have that exact time window circled. They said, we're actually going to be in the process of expanding. We're not looking to hire you for like another three or four weeks, and it would only be for the window you just told us. Okay, cool. 
then yes. <laughs> and I got a job. <laughs> and it was perfect. Except for the fact that part of that job was serving and stocking booze. Because it was a spa. So I was going to be serving white wine and mixed drinks and beer. And I was going to be left alone with that stuff while I was living in the recovery home. But it was interesting to me because it was a chance to say, let's see if this thing really works. Okay. Okay. How much faith am I really going to place in this program? How much faith am I really going to place in this God that I don't believe in? Let's see if this works. And if it doesn't, at least I can have a drink. That was really what my thought was. I mean, that's what I thought, so I, 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 I did it. I'm not wearing a suit and tie tonight because I came from work there today. I haven't had a drink. Kind of miraculous. I hadn't even taken the steps yet, and actually I, I didn't take a drink while I was handling that stuff. And I won't tell you that that didn't smell and look real good sometimes when I was still new. It smelled and looked real good, and I knew it would solve all these problems. I was saving up the money I got from that job actually to fly into the nearest vol- to get a plane to jump in the nearest volcano. Because uh, I was still not not feeling very good in my early sobriety, even at around you know five 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 months or so like that. I was not a happy camper. But uh, and then I went out and started making some amends and took some actual action. At the end of my fifth step, I mean, what was I? Was I recovered? No, I was a self-educated jerk. That's what I was. I knew some character defects and they hadn't been removed. Do you know what I mean? I was just a self-educated jerk. Same as I was after therapy. But when I started going out and making amends, something kind of switched over in me a little bit, and I started getting this kind of sense of like, uh, like, um, like not being alone. And not necessarily just with other people. Like it was like not being alone when I was alone. And like uh, when I would pray, I would start getting these feelings of sort of like, like being in a shower, kind of like being forgiven or something like that. Like like being forgiven, and um, and the more the more amends that I made, and, and I started taking some ten step inventory at that time, the more I kind of felt like uh, like you know when you surf and that, that that wave first catches the back of your board like something's starting to push you, I started feeling a little bit like that. Except I started feeling like that in meetings, and I started feeling like um uh not miserable. I started feeling not miserable, like m- more often than not. And um, I was still hurting a lot, and I got into a lot of pain one day, and, and I, I went and complained to my sponsor. I was like, look, you know, I mean, yeah, I've been sober. I know, I know if I come to tell you that, you know, the obsession hasn't been removed, what you're going to tell me is, well, you haven't taken a drink, and if the obsession hadn't been removed by now, you would have taken a drink. But what I'm telling you, Mike, is like, I still got this to drink and not to drink to drink and not to drink to drink and not to drink. Always ringing in my head and it's so much noise in here that I can hardly stand it, you know? So if that's not the obsession, you've got to tell me, Mike, man, what is it? What is that then? What is that? And he went, selfishness. And he walked away. Selfishness. And it was. I remember I wrote this, this little chicken crap inventory when I was on the the trolley one day, and it said, I wrote it, you know, I'm resentful at douchebag guys with hot girlfriends on the train. <laughs> I was. I didn't have one. <laughs> I, 
had a girlfriend, but she wasn't that hot. <laughs> Did I mention I was not recovered? <laughs> it's a terrible thing to say. That's was the next resentment. I started writing all this stuff out. I mean, I was getting honest, and I was like, oh my God, I'm using this woman because I'm afraid of being alone. I don't even really like her that much. I'm just scared of being alone, and you know, I'm resentful at these guys in the train because I need that because I it really, it's, God, I guess I think it's like the job of a woman to entertain me and complete me and like be my best friend and my confidant and my advisor and my partner and might do all these things for me. And I was like, oh my God, oh my God, like I'm really like a worse dirtbag than I know. And now I have to go make amends to all my girlfriends and oh my God, you know. And then, you know, from that little chicken crap 10 step, this little like seemingly, seemingly benign resentment came all this stuff that I had no idea. And again, it's not therapy, but it's not about me correcting this. Kind of neat. I just need to clean up the crap between me and the people I've harmed, or else I'm disconnected from those people, which is to say I'm disconnected from God. And it was when I started connecting with these people again, and especially with the people in AA, that it's like I started to feel like this sense of like I not just understood, I was try, I've been trying to understand God for 20 years, thank you, but like I, 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 I kind of like knew God a little bit. And, uh, I left Pathfinders. After I left there, I ended up having a barn-burning spiritual experience after I sponsored guys. I had a white light. felt like I floated up off the ground. Got bathed over with water, with this water shining beneath me and forgiven. I mean, it was like really intense. And I was still agnostic. I was still agnostic when that happened. And for a while after. I can tell you, not anymore. I mean, I, my relationship with God is paramount to me. It comes before everything. I'll lose all the rest of everything that I've got without it. I know I will. I know I will. I had a spiritual experience as the result of taking the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. I have not been the same person since then. (laughs) At about two and a half years sober, I got to that point where we get to, where I was like, okay, so I figured it out. I can stay sober. I can stay employed and reasonably happy while I'm sober. That's what usually happens around two years. Okay. Now what? Now what? And that was sort of the big question. I'm thinking about this and thinking about that. What should I do? Should I go back to school? Should I? I have a worthless degree in theater. You know, what am I going to do with that, right? I have a bachelor's of fine arts from Columbia College, Chicago in theater. I don't want to be doing massage therapy forever, but I really like the health field. I was looking for all this clarity, and I had a very specific question that I was asking God about. Should I be going back to school to get into medicine? I mean, that's a huge commitment. You want to take a guy with a liberal arts degree and have him, what, practice medicine? A huge question. And I sat on that question. I was asking God for like three months, and I wasn't getting any answer. And so, of course, I come back and complain to Mike. Mike, I've been asking, been asking God about this for three months. and not getting any answer. Where's this, where's this fourth dimension? Where's this God consciousness? Where is this? I don't feel like I have that. I want, I don't, how much are you meditating? Define meditating. Like most of us. Formally meditating, sitting down, quiet time, breath focus, with God, something like that. Maybe something like breathing in God, breathing out fear. Maybe like shutting up and just trying to keep coming back to the breath. How much, how, how much are you doing that per week? Five or ten minutes. He goes, oh, okay, I get it. So I just want to be clear. I just want to make sure I understand what you're saying. You, you, you want like what? Like a blinding message to come from God. You want like a clear radio signal from God. Uh, but, you know, you, you, you want to get that, Right. You want to use basically this intuition that you're promised to get that. I said, yes. And he's like, but yet you're not refining your intuition. 
that's a pretty ridiculous demand to place on God. Tell me, I want you to meditate 15 minutes a day for 30 days, and don't talk to me about it until you're done. Just do it. Don't think about it. Don't unearth that seed. It's not going to grow. Just shut up about it. Just do it and come back to me in 30 days. And of course, it came back 30 days later, and the answer was clear as day. Me with these, all these, these charges that I have, right? Not nice charges on my record. Not nice. And I've been arrested a lot, a lot of times and done some really nasty things. Going to practice in medicine? Yeah, right. There's not a medical school in the world who's looking for a person like that. But the answer that I had gotten was, yeah, do it. Go do it. So I decided to start with you know a little general chemistry class and psych class to see if I could get the neurons firing because I killed a lot of brain cells while I was out there and I, I didn't feel nearly as smart as I used to be. So I started doing this thing. It starts going pretty well. I ended up getting accepted into this post-baccalaureate at Cal State San Marcos. Like, triple-A ball, right? Like, that's not, you know, you're, you're pretty close there. It was good. So I do this post-bac pre-med and, uh, I mean, suddenly this guy who can't even show up to the liquor store on time is running a 100-hour schedule. You know what I mean? I'm in the hospital all day. Then I go to work. Then I'm in classes all night. Thank you. And, uh, uh, yeah, a hospital is actually letting me go in there and handle their patients. That was a God shot, too, that I don't have time to tell you. But, yeah, big coincidence uh, as to how that happened. Anyway, um, I don't have the energy for that, somebody like me. And I might not be alone in here, but I have a tendency to, when things are going real well, <laughs> to kind of pull the roof down on it. Relationships careers, school, things like that. I want to be clear. Are we at 10 now? Okay, thank you. Uh, So, or are we at five? Okay, I'm just going to tell the rest of it quickly and I'll stop when I'm done. So I'm doing this thing and uh, the level of discipline that it takes is not something that I really have. I don't really have that, right? So do more AA, the thing that I don't have time to do. That was my sponsor's suggestion. So do more AA. I start doing it, and suddenly I get this discipline. It comes. And I start doing AA in the classroom. I start showing up 15 minutes early, shaking hands, talking to people, helping in what I can, asking questions, admitting what I don't know, right? Doing a little bit of service around the campus, maybe. I start doing AA in school, and I start doing AA in the hospital, and suddenly things start looking pretty bright, right? But I still can't get the... I get this news that absolutely talk to a lawyer. No way are you going to be able to get into medical school with this, this, this. And we talk to all these medical schools, blah, 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 blah. And uh, I asked God for a little more guidance. And I just, I just kept going. I just kept going. And I decided, okay, it's going, to be, it's going to be medical school, but for PA, physician assistant. That's what I want to do. I don't want to be doing this for the next 10 years. I want to, I want to be on the front line sooner than that. And I want to practice emergency medicine. I want to be an emergency medicine PA and I don't know what's going to happen, and I'm probably not going to get in, but I've got to finish this and at least say that I tried. i got to at least say that I tried, and I did everything that I could. Um, I couldn't get all the classes I need. God gave them to me. I didn't have enough money for these classes at this other place. God gave it to me. I didn't know how I was going to possibly stay sober. Stay sober. Stay sober. <laughs> stay sober. There's really no way I'm going to get into medical school if I can't speak. I didn't know how I was going to stay sober throughout all of this. How am I going to still sponsor guys with this? Now I'm at 110 hours a week. How can I possibly do this? You're going to get up earlier. You're going to sponsor guys at night. I can't find you to sponsor. You don't have time to go home. I'm not going to go to the Salvation Army. Okay, 
Go to the Salvation Army. Good. Find a pathetic drunk there. Good. Just go get one. <laughs> carry the message. T- tried. Tried to carry the message. Not waited. Not sat back and waited to carry the message. Tried. Right? And then a kind of remarkable thing happened recently on my five-year sobriety anniversary, which is I got an email that read, congratulations, you have been accepted to the Yale School of Medicine class of 2020. That applause cannot go to me, though. That's the thing. It can't. I didn't do it. I did some footwork, and God did the rest. Because what I was doing out there was AA. That's the theme in my life. I do the footwork. God does all the heavy lifting, provided I follow a few simple rules. I, I never imagined that it could actually happen. I mean, I really, truly, I, I, had, to, I had to have my wife read it. And I was like, this isn't... You know what I mean? I never imagined I could actually stay sober. I never imagined I would actually get married. I never imagined I'd actually have a daughter. I never imagined any of these things. And like, uh, it all comes from here and from you guys, from God. Like all of it. I used to think it was so corny when people would say, everything I have in my life, not anymore, man, because I know exactly what they're talking about. Like, It is undeserved. It's undeserved. It's grace and it's God. I bombed that Yale interview. I bombed it. I was late to the second interview because I was stuck in the first. I was late to it and the woman was so pissed off at me that when I came in and tried to apologize, she said, that's fine, we're going to start. And it went terribly. I inadvertently insulted her. (laughs) She said, tell me about a time... Tell me about, a, tell me about a, someone you worked with that you really didn't like. And I said, oh, okay, I can think of one right away. I said, uh, let's call her Mary. Oh, God, no, I'm sorry, your name's Mary. And she said, it's fine. And I got in? No, no, that's God. That's God. And there's no way around it. I am sober by the grace of God. I am sane by the grace of God. I get to eat and sleep, and my mom gets to sleep peacefully at night, not worrying about the next phone call she's going to get all the way back in Illinois. She called me before this meeting, and I get to say, guess what I'm doing right now, Mom? It's a miracle. I am so thankful for Alcoholics Anonymous. I am so thankful. And that's why it was an easy, reflexive choice, knowing my cubbies are playing in the playoffs right now. I get asked to speak, you betcha. You betcha. I don't even care. It's fine. This meeting is, this meeting is great, and I'm not going to swear. This meeting is great. I love this meeting. And um, I, I want to thank Perry and Gary so much for having me speak here. You guys have been just so easy to talk to. Thank you for being like friendly and easy as an audience. You guys rock. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, uh, for you new guys, man, um, whether it's your first time or not, it really, it really doesn't matter. You guys can do this, man. It's just a matter of doing it. I don't, I, I don't care how many times you all have tried this before, what you haven't tried. If you want to be sober, and if you're willing to do some shit that you just downright don't feel like doing that seems really silly and like it won't work, you're going to stay sober. You will. Thank you so much for having me, and uh, God bless.
Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.